Imagine, if you will, a United States divided. Our Constitution wasn't written for all Americans, not even all men as it claims, and that's becoming unavoidable to even the most distant and privileged observer. However, around half of the country, or half of its electors anyway, has built its identity around these injustices and doesn't love the idea of an equal just union. It's ready to kill to keep things unequal and unfair. We need a leader, someone with vision, empathy, and guts. And hey, a new Democrat is about to be sworn in and set a record for presidential age at inauguration. He wasn't anybody's first choice for the job, but there's also cause for concern that he will try to stick to moderate centrism in a time where that just means letting right-wing terrorists take over. Obviously, we're talking March 4th, 1853, Franklin Pierce's inauguration day. Yikes, he ain't the hero we need. But at the same time, a young journalist is traversing the South. He is compiling a massive and broad-reaching work of anti-slavery in the U.S. When he's done, he's going to envision a better future and then build it. Frederick Law Olmsted is one of the greatest of the United States. I'm Michael Makar, and this is The GOTUS. POTUS number 14, Franklin Pierce. Today's GOTUS, Frederick Law Olmsted, journalist, landscape architect. Let's start in the middle of the Venn diagram with what Olmsted and Pierce had in common. Both grew up wealthy in New England. Both believed slavery was morally wrong. They would both contribute to the widening divide between North and South in the 1850s, though in vastly different capacities. Most bizarrely, both endured the loss of a son weeks before facing perhaps the grandest stages of their careers. From there, the two men diverge. Pierce was a generally likable man of little conviction and favorably little reputation. Olmsted was a deliberate, focused builder unafraid of contention if it meant doing things right. The 1850s for Olmsted would be a start, his first national contribution only overshadowed because his later work shaped our country so memorably. Pierce's 1857 departure of the White House, on the other hand, marked the end of his impact on, really, anything. We've met the players. Let's set the stage. I think the best way to sum up the U.S. in 1852 is the Compromise of 1850. In breaking from the tradition of adding states in pairs, one free state and one slave state, California gained statehood in 1850 with no counterpart. To make sure slavers weren't getting an unfair shake of things, the Fugitive Slave Act passed as well. If you escaped enslavement, made it to a northern state, and tasted freedom, you could be extradited back to captivity. So, the Free State Coalition gets more sway in Congress, but slave states gain direct power over those free states on the main issue dividing them. Compromise isn't a great term. It's a concession to the South, but disguised as two-sided, so the South can be angry too. If there's one important lesson in U.S. history, it might just be that white Southern men are destructively insecure and will do anything to avoid feeling like they're losing power. If there's a second, it might be that Northern white men are very content tut-tutting at problems from a distance. Few hands are truly clean here. So here we are, a split nation, one half fighting to prolong atrocity, one half unwilling to stand up and move forward. Enter Franklin Pierce. He's the Democratic nominee for president. He's not the nominee you or I want. He's not the nominee that anybody wanted from an open ballot. He's not the nominee he wanted. So, as his opponents asked, 
Who is Frank Pierce? What has he done? Franklin Pierce was a young politician. He was the youngest elected president at the time. People seemed to find him generally likable. His friends included Nathaniel Hawthorne from college and former President James Polk from his time in Congress. He leveraged that friendship with Polk to an officer post during the Mexican-American War, where he had undue authority over thousands of men and developed a reputation as a fainter and as a drunk. Fainting Frank was known as the hero of many a well-fought bottle. But in the political realm, I guess the fact that he was a general rang louder than his actual work in the military. And now, at the 1852 Democratic Convention in Baltimore, dozens of ballots go through without a clear frontrunner. Someone puts Franklin Pierce's name down as like a tactical thing. We can't pick anyone, so let's put no one down and see where we go from there. But then people realize they have no idea who Franklin Pierce is. That means they've got no beef with him. True to form, when he learned he would be the Democratic nominee for president, he fainted. The guy's just built to lead. At the Whig convention, also in Baltimore, sitting President Fillmore got primaried. Now, I'm going to level with you here. I can't really discern how the Whig and Democratic platforms of 1852 differed, and I also don't have a great answer for why the only anti-slavery candidate from the Free Soil Party dropped to 4% of the vote after getting 10% in 1848. The Democratic candidate who didn't even want to be here wins 50% of the vote because our two-party primary system is broken. He wins 86% of the electoral votes, because our electoral structure is broken. Franklin Pierce becomes president, because all of our mechanisms are broken, exactly as they were designed to be. The rich, indifferent, drunk, inoffensive New Englander takes the throne. At his inauguration, weeks after his son was killed in a train crash, he begged his people, You have summoned me in my weakness. You must sustain me by your strength. Well, he got the first part right. Starting just before and ending just after Pierce's one term as president, from 1852 to 1857, the New York Times deploys a journalist on a massive study of the South. Frederick Law Olmsted, a wealthy New Englander, had been college-bound before a medical issue required him to cancel. He had grown up a lover of nature. Him and his father had gone on horseback rides and visits to England to appreciate nature and natural setting. Now he embarks on a voyage across every U.S. state in which slavery is legal, as well as Texas, which wasn't a state at the time. He's traveling to study how slavery fits into the U.S., economically, socially, morally. He states up front in his reports that he is anti-slavery, but aims to approach the issue with an open mind. He's here to gather facts. He's here to report. And report he did. He publishes a massive three-part report, a staggering achievement at this stage in his career. To gather facts for his report, he spoke with enslaved people. He compiled economic reports, almanac data. He observed every aspect of plantation life he could. The report is massive in scope, not just geographically, but conceptually. He combines anecdotal evidence from conversations he had with data from almanacs and reports. The economics of the system are broken. There's no middle class, only oppressed and oppressors. Workers aren't incentivized with wages, and the inefficiencies of this cruelty are locking the South in a downward spiral. He also reports on the moral hazard of slavery. The way enslaved people were being treated was illegal, even according to the laws of the South at the time. Food quotas and work conditions were being flouted. This isn't a fair system. This isn't a system that can fit into America. Now, there are moments where Olmsted makes comments that don't hold up today. In one conversation with an enslaved person, he talks about how scary the savagery of Africa must have been. America was a pretty savage place. So Olmsted was still a product of his time. But nonetheless, he was on the right side of history. His report is credited with galvanizing some of the northern attitude against slavery. It's impossible to say how important the report was at its time. 
what it actually achieved in terms of policy and outcome, but that's not the point of journalism. He presented the facts. He brought a distant issue that Northerners were content to be at arm's length from into their newspapers, into their homes, into their minds. He made the issue of slavery something that Northerners could no longer ignore. So while we don't know exactly what Olmsted accomplished in this time, I would say that he contributed to the eventual passing of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and possibly contributing to the most important constitutional amendment since our country was founded is enough. Frederick, thank you for your contribution. Let's check in on the president right after the break. The pilot episode of The GOTIS is brought to you by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I mean that literally. All of the sources I didn't draw freely from the World Wide Web were found within the Enoch Pratt system. And in case you're wondering, Enoch Pratt does deserve the recognition. A titan of industry, he put his money towards libraries, hospitals, and public art. If you're not in the Baltimore area, consider this an official endorsement of your local library. Libraries. They're awesome, and I miss going in them. Generally, Franklin Pierce's presidency is remembered exclusively for bleeding Kansas. I find this to be an adequate assessment. You're the president. Your country is expanding. Some people think slavery is good. You believe, morally, that that's not the case. But you believe the Constitution says that slavery is okay. Four years ago, Congress passed a compromise. California gained statehood alone, and the Fugitive Slave Act passes. You, now the president, considered this a good move. So... New territories are being added. Should the black people there be considered people or property? It's a tough call for you, right? What would you choose? Well, you're the president. You're not here to make tough decisions. You let the people decide. Welcome to Bleeding Kansas. Pro and anti-slavery forces stormed Kansas to push the new territory towards adopting slavery or recognizing freedom. The anti-slavery forces came with ideals, hopes, and morals. Pro-slavers came with fire and guns. Skirmishes littered the territory. To be clear, pro-slavery terrorists were overwhelmingly the inciters and the agitators. However, there was violence all around. There were retaliation and there were attacks on the side of anti-slavers. Pierce left his morals at the door to allow some of history's greatest atrocity one more chance to thrive. The downward spiral continued. In seven years, the country would be at war. In 166 years, the country would still lack the moral backbone to recognize and repair its foundational problems. You are President Franklin Pierce. You are rightfully forgotten. You are a failure. Who are you, Franklin Pierce? And what have you done? That'll be all, Frank. With that, we can dust off our hands, figuratively if not historically, and promptly forget the 14th president. Olmsted, on the other hand, hasn't even gotten started. Over the next 50 years, Frederick Law Olmsted would see a brighter future for America and then build it. You have felt the presence of his positive contributions to society. It begins with Olmsted looking for work in 1857 during an economic crisis. At the time, New York City was running a contest to design its first public park. Olmsted, together with Calvert Vox, submitted the Greensward Plan. Their plan was unique in its aim and in its relationship to the city. Other plans wove geometric patterns symmetrically through the park. They blended the park into the city seamlessly and congruently. They aimed to dazzle with immaculate splendor. Olmsted and Vox's design was subtle. It aimed to be organic. If you were just a block away from city buildings, you would feel like you were in nature, not in a city. 
The park was meticulously designed to feel natural. They didn't want you to notice the beauty of their park as much as feel and experience it. And most importantly, they wanted the space to be integrated and democratic. Olmsted talks about parks as a great place of equality. A lesser designer might have built spaces to keep lower and upper classes separate and probably also segregate by race, sex, and so on. But to Olmsted, the park was a place for the benefit of all, each visitor contributing to the well-being of all others. Obviously, their plan won. It became Central Park. The construction certainly had its obstacles. The budget was a constant struggle. Olmsted described his supervisor, a member of the park board, as a tyrant. And during this time, he lost his infant son. His son died from illness, but a week before that, Olmsted and his wife were in a carriage accident. The son survived, but the parents would blame themselves for his death, even though they were unrelated. It's a sobering reminder that stories rarely end, and even rarer do they have a happy ending. In Franklin Pierce's story, his electoral victory should have been his undeserved happily ever after. In reality, he didn't even want it, and by the time he swore in, he was miserable and grieving. Olmsted claimed victory when the Greensward plan was selected. His upbringing around nature, his appreciation of parks and scenery and green space, it all culminated in his designing the most famous park in America. But of course, the story doesn't end with winning. After you win, you have to build. After you win, the real challenge begins. And sometimes, after you win, your son is thrown from a carriage or a train. Olmsted returned to work two weeks after his carriage accident, leg broken and son lost. He was in a lot of pain, but damn it, he did good work. He had people carry him around to different sites. He crawled to get a better look at areas of the park being built. You're probably familiar with the results. But during construction, another, even bigger obstacle emerged. The U.S. was headed to war. Against the U.S. Olmsted took charge of the U.S. Sanitary Commission, which tended to wounded soldiers during the Civil War, and is known as a precursor to the Red Cross. There are plenty of crisscrossing Civil War stories to get to in later episodes, so let's move on for old Frederick. Uh, let's check in on Frank in the meantime. Okay, he hasn't exactly grown in status, even a presidency won't build clout if you became president by lacking clout, but he's definitely contributing his voice to the country. He has, for example, stated that northern states are too aggressive in trying to end slavery. He said that the new president, this tall guy from Illinois, is using too much presidential power against the southern states. The U.S. needs to avoid civil war, after all. It's not like anyone is doing anything wrong here. Well, thanks for chiming in, Frank. Olmsted's next gig was with a mining company in California. Most notably during this time, he visited the land that is now Yosemite National Park and wrote letters asking for federal protection of the land on the basis of its dashing good looks. That had never happened before. America's most famous urban park? Olmsted's architecture. Arguably its most famous national park? A little less direct, but still probably a result of Olmsted's vision. He returned to Brooklyn and, reuniting with Calvert Vox, designed Prospect Park in Brooklyn which Brooklyn wanted to design in order to rival Manhattan's awesome new park. If you can't beat him, join him. And from there, Olmsted went on a tear. He designed a whole string of connected parks in Buffalo, which had never been done anywhere. He helped preserve Niagara Falls, which states weren't really doing by themselves yet. Have you been to Niagara? I've been to the Canadian side. You get to look onto the U.S. side, beautifully preserved, a monument of nature crashing into itself. But what's neat about the Canadian side is you also get to enjoy the farcical reality of what could have been if the land hadn't been preserved. It's just a joke of a tourist trap. Capitalism unfettered, juxtaposed with how much you can do with a space by just saying, hey, let's not put anything here. It's already pretty nice. Olmsted continues on designing parks around the country. His sons join in and continue the legacy. 
by the time Olmsted dies in 1903, his vision is not just reality, it's normality. A city has parks. A city park looks like an Olmsted park. He had the type of impact that's so deep, it's hard to appreciate. So, we've jumped a few decades ahead. What has Frank been up to? Well, his drinking worsened. Not great. He expressed sympathy for some of the Confederacy's highest leaders. Worse. He supported Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, and one of the few men historians may argue did a worse job in the Oval Office than Pierce. And that's about it. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a biography on his friend. The book is known as a venal homage to ambitious mediocrity. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. The guy was just always on the wrong side of history, just always picking the wrong horse to back. And rightfully, we forget him. Frederick Law Olmsted's positive effect on our lives is so ubiquitous, we tend to forget it. Of course cities need parks. Of course designated preserved green space is a necessity for high quality of life. Of course, preserving, funding, and supporting those parks and public spaces are government responsibility. None of that was the case, much less the assumption, back when Olmsted was dismantling the pleasant, stable image of life in the slave-owning American South. None of that was the case when he contended against budgets, bureaucracy, and hardship to build a brighter future, one that served to the benefit of all Americans. You don't need to be president to build this country up. Olmsted's template for being a great American is pretty simple and pretty hopeful. Find something you believe in and build it. Build it big. Build it bright. Build it for everyone. Build it right. Thanks for listening.